And for one reason or another, that got pushed off, pushed off, pushed off till uh, now I'm going to finish uh, the series. Today is our last series in this, uh, this part of the summer series. We'll start with our new bodybuilders session next week. So be looking at the worship folder at the bulletin. You can see all of the classes that will be offered beginning next week. But I want to be able to talk this morning about David Livingston, an, an explorer, an emancipator, an evangelist. When I do these times, all I do is try to read a book or two um, and then just summarize what I learned. It's, it's almost like a book report. Uh, there are probably hundreds of biographies, uh, more when you consider all the articles that are written about David Livingston, but I'm using the book, uh, David Livingston, The Truth Behind the Legend by Rob McKenzie. Uh, and I would recommend it to you if you would like to do some reading yourself uh, to learn a little bit about uh, David Livingston. So, because there are so there's so much written about this man, much of came much of it came from his own pen through his diaries. It's going to be very difficult to summarize his life, you know, sixty some odd years, whatever it was, and be able to tell you in 40 minutes or whatever uh, his life, but I'd like to try to do that and, and summarize it. When I was leaving the house this morning, I told my wife how excited I was to be able to share this with you. Actually, a couple of years ago, Pastor Rodney talked to us about David Livingston, um, and I, had, uh, I was a bit bitter that he did because I wanted to do that, but uh, I decided I would do that this time around. And I told my wife, I said, I don't know, I don't know if I'm going to have enough material to cover the entire time. And she said, honey, it's okay. Nobody minds if you finish early. And so I wasn't exactly sure how to take that, but, but take it, I did. So my plan today is just to basically read you what I wrote about David Livingston, and I'll do it with some commentary, I'm sure. So this is David Livingston, the explorer, emancipator, and evangelist. He was born to Neil and Agnes Livingston on March 19, 1813, in the town of, I don't know how you say this, Blantyre? Blantyre? Is that what it is? Blantyre, Scotland. I was really nervous about that, thinking, my goodness, we've got, you know, you guys here. Blantyre, Scotland. David Livingston became a national and international hero of sorts. However... His life and work continued to stir quite diverse reactions. Some have been inspired to give their own lives to the cause of, of the gospel of Christ. But others have classified David Livingston as both a missionary and moral failure. His life was marked by incredible sorrow and suffering. He was one who knew the powerful allure of sin in his own heart and experienced the gut-wrenching realities of distress that it brought. He was known as both a missionary and an explorer, yet his life's goal was entwined with bringing an end to the slave trade. People from all over the place knew David Livingston. I mean, he was, he was really a world phenomenon in the day. Uh, it was Florence Nightingale who said, there are few enough, but few statesmen. There are few enough, but few great in medicine or in art or in poetry there are a few great travelers, but Dr. Livingston stood alone as the great missionary traveler, the bringer in of civilization, or rather the pioneer of civilization. 
He that cometh before to, to races lying in darkness. She said, I always think of him as what John the Baptist, had he been living in the 19th century, would have been. What a statement to make about a man. Indeed, Livingston was a man of grit, and he was in constant need of grace. If you would have talked to his brother, he would have, at least early on, referred to him as the cursing ambassador. He loved his wife dearly, but it's also true that he ultimately wasn't there for her. His children really didn't have the opportunity to know their father. He grieved over his children being largely orphaned by his work. He himself often found himself uh, allured by lust. This is David Livingston, a a frail, fragile uh, man who is often known for his failures. His father, Neil Livingston, was a humble tea merchant. Neil was a Christian whose life was taken up with the worship of the one true God. Having grown up under the condemning effects of alcohol and alcoholism, he was wholly committed to abstaining. Neil Livingston longed to live a life of holiness, and he he sought to preach the gospel. Even as a traveling tea salesman, he would use his own funds to purchase gospel tracts for his customers. He was a strict man who yearned for his children to become God-fearing Christians. He was austere. The children often felt the corrective rod of discipline from their father. Yet of his father, David wrote this, he deserves my lasting gratitude and homage for presenting me from infancy with a continuously consistent pious example. His mother, Agnes, was kind-natured Her kind natured gentleness provided a balance to his father's strictness. For four surviving Livingston children, two others had died in infancy. Agnes made sure that they were well trained in orderliness and cleanliness. She wanted to provide that virtue to her children. They enjoyed, I mean, to say that they were a close knit family probably doesn't really even scratch the surface. They would sit together around a wooden table in the center of a 14 by 14. By 14, 14 by 10 foot room that was really not only their dining room and their kitchen and their living room, but their bedroom as well. The family lived a very frugal life where they knew the realities of financial shortfall and hardship. David was called upon at an early age to enter the workforce of a cotton spinning factory. He worked for the Monteith and Company factory, piecing together threads in the spinning frames. The hours, I mean, if you read about, they're just incredibly long hours, incredibly long, hot hours in the summer and incredibly long, cold hours in the wintertime. He would work from six in the morning until eight at night. The 12 and a half hour workdays were afforded only a half hour for breakfast and an hour for lunch, six days a week. In the midst of all of this work, David did not shy away from his academic pursuits. Even after working those those long days at the factory, he would come home at night to do what few others in Scotland at the time did, especially those who were in the factories. He would come home at night to study. And it said that his parents would have to pry the books from his hands just to make him go to sleep so that he could be up the next morning for work. 
He was an incredibly academically gifted young man. As a nine-year-old boy, he committed to memory the 176 verses of Psalm 119, repeating it with only five errors. For that, he received his own copy of the New Testament. Now, you'd think that with all of that, that David would, you know, be drawn, as it was said, be, be drawn to the things of religion, but it was anything but the case with him. He wasn't necessarily against reading the scriptures, but he gravitated more towards an understanding of the sciences. Now, in that day, you have to understand that for the most part, Christianity and the sciences were viewed as incompatible, especially by David's father, Neil Livingston. He would have much rather his son read, you know, spiritual works of religion than something to do with the sciences. And he tried to discourage David from that, even sometimes with the use of the rod. Neil wanted David to read the substantial works of religious interest. And when David resisted, well, he felt the pain. So committed to his education was he that he took his first week's wages to purchase a grammar study of the Latin language. At the age of 13, he attended an extra Latin class. And when the instructor decided it was not profitable for him to continue the instruction, David decided to press on in his study of Latin on his own. And it wasn't just Latin that he loved. He loved and gained a great interest in the other sciences, botany, zoology, uh, to, to name a few. David's parents in carefully instilled the great doctrines of the Christian faith in their children. Now, it's not evident in his early life, and I'm talking about very early life, but it had a great effect on him when he came into his 12th year of age. At age 12, he began to worry about his state as a sinner before God. He had heard the wonders of the gospel, but the fact is he just could not embrace the gospel because of his own sense of unworthiness. He didn't think that he was worthy of God's mercy. There was something in him that yearned to be counted worthy of God's grace for salvation, but he knew he wasn't, and he was really, really stuck. Yet as he poured over the truths of the gospel, as he poured over the free offer of mercy in the gospel, he found his conviction of sin to be overshadowed by the blessing of the pardon of that sin that was to be found in Christ. Listen to what he wrote in his diary. He said, the perfect freeness with which the pardon of all our guilt is offered in God's book drew forth feelings of affectionate love to him who bought us with his own blood. In the glow of that of, of love, that Christianity inspired, he said, I resolve to devote my life to the alleviation of human misery. Now, it wasn't that he had an immediate thought of becoming a missionary, but quote, Feeling that salvation of men ought to be the chief desire and aim of every Christian, he resolved, quote, that he would give to the cause of missions all that he might earn beyond what was required for his sustenance, end quote. He began, as with what happens with a Christian, he began to earnestly long for the fellowship of the saints in the local church. The local church became increasingly important to David, and there As a young man, he was discipled by several older men. Thomas Burke was one of those older men. It seemed like Burke, who who was kind of that 
gripey old soldier uh, was always urging others to give themselves wholly to God. In fact, it's said that Burke would ring a bell early on Sunday mornings uh, at, at, to try to get people out of bed in order to come and join him for an early morning prayer time. While others didn't necessarily like Burke, David and his family, the Livingston family, came to love him for his faithfulness and for his consistent, faith, uh, for his consistent life. Another mentor to David was a man by the name of David Hogg, or Hogg, I don't know, H-O-G-G. David recalled the words of this aged saint from his deathbed. Hogg said to David, Now, lad, make religion the everyday business of your life, and not a thing of fits and starts. For, it, uh, for if you do not, temptation and other things will get the better of you. It was the influence of his family, his church, and those mentors who began, which began to plant the seeds of a missionary passion in the heart of David Livingston. He continued to work year after year in the mill. Following a promotion at work, he was able to finally begin saving money in order to attend university. He was doing something that, as I said before, was unimaginable to other young boys and young men at the mill at the time. His ability to read, his eagerness to study had allowed him to continue to flourish academically and spiritually. It was in 1832 that something of a spiritual stirring began in Scotland. The Livingston family, through a series of events, began attending the Free Church of Scotland where several of the members had been interacting with theologians from America. David seemed to blend well with those in the congregation, the well-read congregation, and, and he was able to access some of the literature from America where there was at least a semblance of some kind of religious awakening, some kind of religious revival taking place under the Second Great Awakening. He, he found himself to be influenced by men like Charles Finney. Finney's enthusiasm to reach lost souls began to play a major role with Livingston. In 1833, David's father had been attending church and he received a little pamphlet from the Netherlands Missionary Society, which was appealing for medical missionaries to be sent to China. His father took that pamphlet home to David and and really something that was stunning, the fact that his father would even consider the sciences and, and the things of religion together was really amazing. But he took that pamphlet home to David, and that really helped to set David's heart aflame for missionary work by using his fervency for the medical sciences. And so at age 20, David, with his father's approval this time, decided that he would become a doctor and that he would begin to preach the gospel. In China. 1836, at the age of 23, he traveled the eight miles to Glasgow and to begin his medical studies. One of the things I found kind of interesting was to, to learn that by today's standards, in fact, I should have taken some of these pictures and put them up for you just to see his medical bag. It, it basically looked like something you would take in the field when you were hunting deer or something like that. By today's standards, the medical training he received was quite primitive. Listen to this. McKenzie says this in his book. He said, surgical operations were performed at hazardous speeds because of the lack of anesthetics. 
Chloroform and ether were not introduced until seven years later, and the discovery of antiseptics lay 25 years ahead. The study of chemistry was growing, but that of physics had hardly started, and biochemistry and bacteriology were unknown. Furthermore, nothing at all was known about the tropical diseases he was to encounter, such as malaria and blackwater fever. His training, despite many inadequacies, equaled that of the finest in the world, and at that time proved to be invaluable. It was in January of 1838 when David finally was able to apply to the London Missionary Society. Now, one of the things that stood out to me was the incredible desire that Neil, David's father, now had for his son to be accepted by the society and to enter into missionary service. At one point, uh, when he knew that his son had made application to the society and they hadn't heard back, he decided to write a letter to the society to tell them a little bit about his son, David, essentially to brag on him. But so eager was he, so eager was he for his son to go into missionary service that he would write this letter and appeal to them to accept him. Finally, word came in September 1838 that David should be sent on for his theological education with a view to his foreign missionary service. You can imagine, however, David's disappointment to find out that his theological teacher was of the opinion that his knowledge of theology was just not up to par. But through some circumstances, he was granted an extension, uh, a period of, of extended probation in order to pursue his studies. David was not known as a preacher. <laughs> he, he, didn't, he wasn't a good orator at all. In fact, at one point, he was preaching in an evening service. Now, you need to know something. His training was that when he was preparing a sermon, he would have to memorize the sermon, and he would stand up and so, to preach. And so through a series of events, he was called to the pulpit to, take out, to, to do pulpit supply at one church in one evening. He stood up, and he announced the text. Then he looked out over his audience and said, Friends, I have forgotten everything that I was supposed to say. Dismissed everyone, descended the pulpit, and exited the church that night. Despite all of that, he continued to pursue his work and found himself to be greatly burdened with the reality of lost souls in China. However, world events in 1839 prevented him from going to China as he had planned. There were the opium wars between Britain and China and made basically ministry in China impossible. China was effectively closed. All that time preparing for China and now wasn't going to happen. But just so happened that also in 1839, David met a missionary, an old missionary man by the name of Robert Moffat from South Africa. He heard Moffat speak of, quote, the smoke of a thousand villages where no missionary had ever been, unquote. <laughs> that was enough to get David's attention. That was the challenge that he was waiting for. And so he set his sights now on moving to Southern Africa. One year later, November of 1840, David sat with his family discussing the calls of world missions. It was a sad morning that morning at 5 a.m. when he had his last cup of coffee with his family, with his father and mother, before setting off to Glasgow bound with, to, to Scotland. I'm sure there were lots of tears that morning, but David turned to Psalm 121, I'm sorry, 135, and he read 
these words. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for he is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself. Israel is his own possession. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Having read the section of scripture, Livingston departed for Glasgow. He boarded the George on December 8th, 1840 and set sail for Cape Town, South Africa. You know, I'm really summarizing everything here, just trying to tell you the story. The passengers dealt with storms and extreme seasickness, not to mention uh, the ship was severely damaged. They, had to, they were delayed because they had to basically pull over and let the ship be repaired. Despite all of the setbacks and the difficulties that they encountered, Livingston pressed on in his heart. Uh, his heart was more set now than ever on going to South Africa and bringing the gospel with him because he said, All men had the right to hear God's word. No nation ought to hoard the gospel like a miser. Suppose that it would be impossible for me to break down Livingston's life, his ministry, his work, and all of these experiences in Africa. As I said, uh, books are still being written. I think there's just recently a new biography that was just written on, on Livingston. And that one consists of hundreds and hundreds of pages. My hope is, my only hope is to fill you in on just a few things to try to, I hope that you can leave here and say, I know something about this, this man. And maybe you'll be encouraged, as I said, to do your own reading. But at least you'll understand something about Livingston. Uh, if he was anything, he was a trailblazer. <laughs> Arriving in Africa was quite the shock. The difference in climate, topography, Especially the difference in ethnicities made a mark on his mind. But what stood out to him most was the treatment that many of the Africans were receiving. You need to know that David was a very bold man. He didn't have opinions. He had facts (laughs) in his mind. And he was sure to share them with everyone, even if they didn't ask. And that caused many to look on him with disdain. But he spoke his mind. He challenged others regarding their treatment of Africans and even of each other. Because many of the missionaries, if you can believe it, they didn't get along with themselves. Sometimes we think of missionary life and we tend to romanticize it quite a bit. It's certainly not made up of the fantasies that we cook up in our minds. The hard work, the difficulties met David head on. In order for him to get to the first mission station in Karaman, he needed to negotiate the difficult terrain complete with flooded swamplands, tropical forests, and almost non-existent roads. Well, not almost. Non-existent roads. Oxen would pull the wagons over rutted pathways, which threatened to topple the wagons and bring any progress to a halt. His journey to Karaman began on April 16, 1841, and he didn't arrive there until July 31st. It was a trip of approximately 700 miles, if you can imagine. 
David attended to medical needs, but his chief focus was to preach the gospel. In October of that year, he embarked on another journey of hundreds of miles to the north toward the Kalahari Desert. I'm not sure that he was prepared for the disease that he encountered in the people along the way. He returned to Koraman in December of 1841. Basically, summarizing a lot of his life here, his life was a conglomeration of difficult travel over unknown and dangerous terrain. He encountered disease and death almost everywhere he went. War was the name of the game between differing tribes there. One chief named Sekomi welcomed Livingston and the others. And he asked Livingston if he had some medicine for him. Some medicine that would help to change his heart. You see, he was burdened with something. He was burdened with his constant anger, the pride of his heart. And he thought that maybe the doctor, maybe the white doctor could give him some medicine to change the anger in his heart, to change the pride in his heart. And when Livingston told him that he didn't have medicine, but he had a message, well, the chief just got up and walked away. The journey continued with sweltering heat. There are stories of all the kinds of difficulties that they encountered. One thing stood out of my mind. On one occasion, there was a local lady who had been killed by a lion. And David wrote how the cries of the orphaned children rang in his ears. In March of 1843, on a trek of over 400 miles, he lost his balance. And when he tried to catch himself, he ended up with a compound fracture in his finger. Left an open wound with the bones poking through his finger. He had to tend to it himself without painkillers, without antibiotics, and he set the bone and made a splint out of of a reed. Weeks later, as the wound was healing, a lion invaded the camp, and without thinking, David quickly grabbed his revolver and fired it, and the recoil rebroke the finger again. His guides were amazed by this, and they said, you've hurt yourself, but you've redeemed us. Henceforth, we will only swear by you. Of that event, Livingston wrote in his diary, I wish that they had felt gratitude for the blood that was shed for their precious souls. In August 1842, uh, and, and that might be 1844, I think the computer typed a wrong date there. Livingston set off again, bound for the valley of Mabotza. It was this journey that would produce one of the most memorable events of his life and maybe lead to his greatest failure. It was his love for the people of Africa that seemed to push him on despite all of the difficulties that he would yet encounter. We, do remember, we would do well to remember at this point that there is a tremendously powerful spiritual enemy whose design is to destroy the faith, if possible, of God's own elect. He works in conjunction with the weakness of the human flesh. The scriptures compare him to a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Livingston was in the territory of this enemy. And that enemy was going to fight tooth and nail to keep the gospel and its messenger from going any further. A mission station had to be started there in Mabotza. The difficulties necessary, the duties necessary, rather, to establish a work like this were many. 
Livingston put in a great amount of physical labor as he worked together with the native people. And one day, he was working on the ditches basically to provide water supply for the mission station. And he heard rumblings from the local people that there, were, uh, there was a, a pride of lions which had moved into the area. Now, that's never a good thing. Fearsome lions not only were responsible for killing cattle and wreaking havoc on the people, but more than that, David's co-workers, those native people, believed that the pride of lions moving into their territory was a bad omen. They believed that they were there because these people were cursed. And Livingston knew that if one of those lions could be killed, not only would the rest of the lions leave, but it would open some freedom in the hearts of the li- and the lives of these precious people. So he quickly threw on his coat, grabbed his gun to go in search of the lions. Others joined him with their rocks and their spears. Once two lions were spotted, they were basically encircled and the hunt began. With a double-barreled rifle or shotgun, Livingston took aim and fired both barrels, hitting but not killing one lion. While he was taking time to reload, the lion sprung on David, and he wrote this. Not while it was happening, but after. (laughs) The lion caught me by the shoulder, and we both came to the ground together. Growling horribly, he shook me as a terrier dog does a rat. He wrote, He said that that being in the lion's mouth produced a stupor on him like he imagined is experienced by a mouse at the first shake of a cat. He said he felt no pain at that point and didn't even feel feel, feeling of terror, but he was conscious throughout the entire event. The lion turned from David and attacked other hunters, but after inflicting great destruction, the lion fell from the effect of the bullets. Livingston had 11 tooth marks as permanent scars, and the bone at the top of his left arm was crunched into splinters. The imperfect setting of his bone produced a stiff arm which caused much suffering for the rest of his life. Sort of like that lion is a parable of the spiritual peril that we face. During the healing process back at the mission station, David laid for weeks uh, seeking to cure or, or treat his own wounds. It wasn't uncommon for maggots to invade the wounds, and in the midst of the dark little hut, Livingston experienced the delirium and the dreams that came with it. He remarked that the closer they drew to Egypt, quote, the nearer we come to moths, vermin of all sorts, which eat everything except iron and glass. He said, I shall not soon forget the lively disappointment I as often experienced on finding that all surgical aid was still on the other side of the Atlantic. When only partially received, I had to begin the erection of, uh, when only partially, yeah, when only partially received, I had begin to, I had to begin the erection of my house and a jerk received and lifting a stone has led to a false joint in my left humerus. I often think of putting a set on it, but I've never been able to plan the time away. It was during this time that he began to talk seriously with a young lady, Robert Moffat's daughter. Her name was Mary. As he was healing and as these things were going on, his affection for Mary grew, though neither she nor him would qualify as a romantic. He wrote to a friend describing Mary as 
A matter of fact lady, a little thick, black haired girl, very sturdy. She was all she she was all he could want in a woman. He proposed and she accepted. And a year later, in January of 1845, at the age of 23, Mary married David, who was at that time 30 years old. Mackenzie said their marriage was not to be one of idyllic domestic felicity, but affected by the stern demands of a vocation unique in the annals of modern Christendom. Together, David and Mary gave themselves wholly to the work of bringing the gospel to the local population. Mary worked to establish a school while David was busy with various and sundry other projects as he labored for the sake of the gospel. One day, a chief named Sicelli called all of his people together to listen to the missionary's message. He said, this is wonderful, but my forefathers were living at the same time yours were. How is it that they never heard of the love of God and of Jesus the Savior? Why did they all pass away into deep darkness? The chief's words probably echoed in David's heart and mind for years to come. It was, an, it was and remains an indictment against the church which had been trifling with our Lord's command. Men were passing into eternal darkness. And I can't help but to think that the words of Sicelli, uh, as I consider the masses of lost people around the world, especially having just returned from Africa. Why was the gospel slow, slow in coming? Why did our fathers pass away into deep darkness? Does not the Lord's command require obedience? Does not the king's business require haste? The chief became a zealous convert, and with his encouragement, the whole village began to attend the mission school. But soon, the Livingstons had to move on again because the water supply failed. It's 1846 that their first boy, Robert Moffat Livingston, was born, and by 1847, Mary was pregnant again. Their second child, Agnes, was born in the midst of a stifling drought. By now, the couple had moved numerous times and endured the hardships and difficulties of drought and disease, the continual reality of living amongst a pagan people. But the work of the gospel was the great passion of their heart, and it was a labor that would require so much sacrifice. So much sacrifice of family, so much sacrifice of life. David later regretted his decision not to play with his children when he was at home with them, and they grew quickly during his long absences. By now, his was a family of four when a third child was born. They continued the work, and the Livingston's journey continued. 1850, a fourth child was born, but Elizabeth soon succumbed to the sickness that was common among the native people. She died A few days after birth, all of the children had faced diseases, but one died. By this time, Mary, too, began to show symptoms and signs of a mysterious illness as her her face kind of drooped. It looked like she had suffered a stroke or something. And now questions began to be hurled at David, asking if it was enough for him to leave now that he had lost a child and maybe was going to lose a wife as well. Would he finally give in? Would he finally take his wife and children back home to Scotland? Would he be satisfied with the work that he accomplished? Those questions really were questioning his motives. He wrote this to his sister. He said, fever may cut us all off. I feel much when I think of the children dying. But who will go if we don't? No one. I would venture everything for Christ. Pity I have so little to give. 
but he will accept us for he is a good master. Never one like him. He can sympathize. May he forgive. May he purify. May he bless. Can you imagine the pain? Can you imagine the pain of those children? Can you imagine the torment that would have been experienced by their parents as they saw their swollen little bodies swollen from mosquito bites and tsetse flies? It was decided that in April 1852 that Mary and the children would set sail for Britain. It was a sorrowful goodbye, and they didn't know if they would ever see one another again. Livingston and his family was, to, to, to Livingston, his family was perhaps his greatest failure. He loved them. I don't think that anyone can know the extreme pain of saying goodbye to your wife and children. Here's what he wrote. The act of orphaning my children, which now becomes painfully near, will be like tearing out my bowels, for they will all forget me. But I feel it is a duty to him who did much more for us than that his command is, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Forbid it that we should ever consider holding a commission from the king of kings as a sacrifice. David suffered much during his life. He endured hostilities from enemies, the constant plague of disease, and even the disappointment of close friends. He wrote, I have drunk water swarming with insects, thick with mud, putrid from rhinoceros' urine and buffalo's dung. He endured depression. He endured great physical trials. I don't suppose that one could measure the physical toll that the work of opening a uh, uh, a road for the gospel through Africa would demand from David. There's just, there's just too many stories of, of facing death to count. By the time he famously met Stanley in 1871, David was a shell of himself. Dysentery alone sapped the life from his body. But I keep coming back to the thought of being separated all those years from his family. Now, he would briefly be reunited with them, but the family would never truly be together. In fact, it said that Mary missed her husband so much that she never recovered, and it said that she went on to seek, the solace, seek solace in alcohol. She would die in January of 1862, 11 years before David died in 1873. A year before his death, he continued to battle his own doubt that Africa could ever be reached with the gospel. He wrote about this as he was trying to strengthen his own faith in his, in his diary. He said, he will keep his word, the gracious one, full of grace and truth. No doubt about it. He said, him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, I will give it. He will keep his word. And then I come and humbly present my petition and it will be all right. Doubt is here inadmissible, surely. Wow, so much of Livingston's life seemed to revolve around the discovery of the source of the Nile River. His unwavering commitment to finding that source led ultimately to his death in 1873. Many people questioned Livingston's life and work. They questioned his motives in finding the source of the Nile. 
Various accounts of Livingston's stubborn dedication to this endeavor have concluded that his determination was driven by an arrogant pride to be the first to discover and chart the Nile's source. Mackenzie described his heart motive. Revealing the Nile's source would provide him with new fame. This, he said, could be used to generate public opinion against the slave trade, which in turn would force the government to act. Livingston said, the Nile sources are valuable to me only as a means of enabling me to open my mouth with power among men. David Livingston loved Africa. He loved those precious pagan people among whom he lived and with whom he worked. It broke his heart to see the Arab and Portuguese slave trade, the the unspeakable horror of warring tribes carrying off defeated foes and selling them to slave traders is disgusting. You have to remember, David saw the devastated villages. He smelled the charred ruins. He heard the cries of orphans from the despicable reality of slavery. Livingston faced, on more than one occasion, the very real temptation to take the life of those slave traders. But instead of taking their lives, he gave his in the cause of the gospel to save many and to ultimately see the slave trade ended. It was his love, not simply of Africa or for Africans that drove him to such length. He loved them. He loved them for sure. And they loved him. Listen to the words that are inscribed on his tombstone. Brought by faithful hands over land and sea, here rests David Livingston, missionary, traveler, philanthropist, born March 19, 1813 at Blantyre, Lanarkshire, died May 1, 1872 at Chitambo's village, Yulala. For 30 years, his life was spent in an unwearied effort to evangelize the native races to explore the undiscovered secrets, to abolish the, dev- the, the desolating slave trade in Central Africa. Wherewith his last word he wrote, All I can add in my solitude is, may heaven's rich blessing come down on everyone, American, English, Turk, who will help to heal this open sore on the world. While he loved Africa, and he loved Africans, It was ultimately his love for the Lord Jesus Christ who had so abundantly pardoned him that motivated him to go to such great lengths. David Livingston was a man wrought with faults and failures. So many stories about him. Some uh, on some of the books that I read, I even listened to some on the Audible app. Some I'm sure are just rumors. But I'm pretty sure we can assume that most of the stories about him were genuine. Did he battle with lust while spending time away from his wife? Was he a difficult colleague? Was he austere, demanding, tough on others? Maybe use language that most deemed inappropriate? I suppose so. But the only way we know of those things are because most of them are written about in his own diaries. He grieved before the Lord over his sin. He grieved before the Lord over his sin and over his failures. And he longed to be free from the body of sin. I want you to think about this. Think 
perhaps of the day when 100 or more biographies and countless articles would be written about your life, your ministry, your family, your work. Could you imagine if you had that many biographers looking into your life? Could you imagine if there was a website that was dedicated to you called allmysins.com there for the world to see? What would the details be of such a biography? How many of your failures would you be happy to share with the world? One of the reasons that I wanted to do a series like this during this summertime as we look together at the lives of frail and sinful men and women who were used of God to do extraordinary things is to remind us all that God only saves sinners and only uses those whom we might characterize as failures. Read your Bible. In this cancel culture day, we can't fail to look back through the Scripture and find the stories of those whom the Scripture says the world was not worthy. Yet those same people were fraught with their own inadequacies and their own spiritual blunders. They were often incompetent and most of the time botched things big time. That's the kind of people that God ordains to do His work in this world. (laughs) He does that in order to tell us more about Himself than to tell us about us. You see, in the final day, friends, you and I will not be remembered because of our faults and our failures, our sins and our griefs. We will be remembered as trophies of grace. Now, Maybe you're tempted right now to think that I'm giving you an apologetic for antinomian living. You know, just do whatever you want. No matters. No worries. It's not that at all. In fact, it's actually an apologetic for living a holy life and a righteous life, even though you often fail. It's an appeal to take your little fragile self and to seek to do something great for God. Let me close with a, I I guess the call that David, the, the plea that David Livingston will be remembered by. He said this, I would say to missionaries, come on, brethren. Come on to the real heathen. You have no idea how brave you are until you try. And may you take the life of David Livingston as an inspiration today to go and to do something great for your great God. Let's pray.